you haven't already, join with me at Romans 15. We've got, I think, several more weeks in Romans. We're in the 50s of sermons in Romans, and the main message of Paul's letter to the Romans has just finished, in fact, at verse 13 of chapter 15. That's considered to be the main body, and I think you'll see why there's a shift there today. But that doesn't mean the book or letter is finished. There's still much to do for Paul and for us, and all of God's Word is breathed out by God and profitable for, for rebuke and teaching and growth and godliness and so forth. So, so we trust that even when he's talking about his plans to travel, that there is something there for us from the Lord because this is God's Word. Well, one of the ways we can tell that there's a shift or that we're through with the main body is just a shift in tone. A shift in Paul's tone beginning in our text for this morning, which we'll read in a minute. We can tell that he's gradually drawing the letter to a close. We know Paul, we know his other letters, and and he's holding true here as well. He worked through the weighty theological truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you know, in the first 11 chapters of of the book letter. And then he transitioned to practical instruction or application from chapter 12, verse 1, through just this verse right before our text, chapter 15, verse 13. And now Paul begins to speak of his personal relationships with with those who will receive the letter, and he will describe his personal situation as an apostle and his plans for the future. The fine theologian and commentator Tom Schreiner, explaining a bit more of this and just enlisting his help to help us know how to handle, help me handle Uh, these parts of the letters that don't seem like they're meaty teaching or something like that or, or practical application. What do we do with it? Quote, the substance of Paul's exhortation to the Romans is completed, yet we should not consider the remaining portion of the letter a mere appendix. Paul wants the Romans to understand that his exhortation to them is based on his apostolic call to plant churches among the Gentiles. As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul plays a vital role in the fulfillment of God's saving promises to the nations. Thus, he returns to some of the themes introduced in chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, but elaborates on them now in more detail at the end of the letter. Why does Paul's call receive more attention here than in the earlier part of the letter? Well, now that Paul has articulated his gospel in the body of the letter the Romans will have a better grasp now of Paul's unique calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. He has received a priestly commission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and through Christ he has planted Gentile churches where none previously existed in an area from Jerusalem to Illyricum, end quote. So much then to learn and to glean. And so with that brief bit of overview in mind, we now turn to our text, Romans 15, 14 to 21, where Paul discusses his particular calling as, an, as a, a pot, the apostle to the Gentiles, in which also Paul considers his gospel ambitions. Let's pray once again before we read the text, then we'll read it, and then we'll work through it in four points. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, we thank you for the apostles, all the 
authors, writers through whom you inspired your word, breathed out by you through these men, the very word of God. And so to you we look. We do not hold the Bible in such high esteem because we worship the Bible. We hold the Bible in such high esteem because we worship you. And this is your word. And so I pray, Father, that you will guard us from error, that you'll guide us into the truth, that you'll help those who are here with the truth of your word, that you'll convict and, and warn and educate, grow, encourage, teach as your word is proclaimed and held high. May you be glorified as we are helped. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans 15, uh, 14 to 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience." by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand the holy and inerrant word of God. Okay, I said four points, breaking it up. Number one, pastoral Paul, verse 14, pastoral Paul, just verse 14 Paul has already written that he's aware of the Roman congregation's great faith in the promises of God and redeeming work of Christ. He, he wrote way back at the beginning, verse 8, chapter 1, he wrote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, you Roman Christians. Apparently, the Roman church was thriving, and news of this had spread throughout the churches and, of course, to Paul. It was a historically significant thing that a Christian church, perhaps in many houses, who knows uh, for sure, but that a Christian church was established in the very heart of the Roman Empire. What a thing. What a thing. And so, as he wraps up the letter, Paul warmly reminds these brothers and sisters that he knows of God's work in their midst. He's heard of it, and he's thankful 
for them and happy about them. Paul knows that if God has begun a good work, he will certainly see it through to completion. So he fully expects that whatever their current struggles are, which he's written to them about, he's heard about that too, whatever their current shortcomings, current divisions and weaknesses, surely are some, just as with the other churches to whom Paul wrote, that God will ultimately lead them through it and all the way home. Again, Paul writes in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. We may, we may uh, see implied my brothers and sisters, my family members. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's high praise. High praise. So, Paul is confident that what he has heard is in fact true. This is why Paul speaks of the goodness or fullness of the members of this church who are knowledgeable of the basics of the Christian faith so far as he's heard and and who are therefore fully competent to instruct one another about any of the theological matters discussed in this letter. Paul expects that the members of this church will be able to digest and respond to the various issues which Paul has raised with them. And they are weighty. They have been weighty, have they not? Deep. And so he gives them this tremendous compliment. He says, I want you to know I see your growth in grace. I've heard of it and I celebrate it. He's convinced that the, Roman, the, the Romans in the church at Rome, that they are spiritually healthy. And he describes three ways that they are spiritually healthy in this verse alone. We've read the verse twice already. What are they again? Full of goodness, fullness. Filled with all knowledge. They're being taught well. They're being discipled. So much so that they're able to instruct one another. They're discipling each other. People are being raised up, leaders, elders, teachers. Older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching younger men and so on. Just as he instructed to, to Titus and so on and so forth. Might we more encourage one another in just that kind of way? Do we give spiritual encouragement like that? Do we stop and note? And I know some of you do, and when this happens, it's, it's so wonderful. But do we stop and note, brother, I have noted the way you have a passion for God's Word, and I want to tell you that it encourages me. Or, sister, I've seen you growing in grace over the last year or three. I can see it in how you are relating to people. I can see it in how you're relating to your troubles. I can see it in what you care about. I can see it in the kindness and goodness of your heart towards others and so on. Do we talk to each other that way? Do we pause to encourage one another in spiritual ways? Christians need warm and uplifting encouragement as well as they need sound teaching and timely warnings. And that's what's, what Paul is doing here. There is a time, 11 chapters worth of time, perhaps years of time, in Ephesus, for example, for deep doctrine, 
and instruction. There is a time for warning. There is a time for fending off wolves. There is a time for encouragement. Is there not? There's a time for pausing and saying, boy, the Lord sure is kind in what He's doing in your life to one another. Think about that. I think I would also ask, wouldn't you like to be accounted for in this way, as Paul accounts the Roman church, the Christians at Rome? That's how Paul describes them. Oh, how good you are. Oh, how God is moving in your midst. Oh, how well taught you are teaching one another. Wouldn't you like to be thought of in that way? Wouldn't you like our church to be known for these things? Perhaps just hearing Paul write this to the Romans makes you want to be even more like that. That is the first thing then that that he has to say in verse 14 as he shifts from the main body to personal greetings. He starts right in on encouragement. Pastoral Paul. All right, number two. Paul as priest of God. Verses 15, 16 and 17. Paul as priest of God. All right, so because of Paul's confidence in the Roman Christians, he now tells them that He has been able to be direct and forthright with them at times. He wants them to know that he knows that the reason he was able to press so hard and go so deep in those first 11 chapters is because of his confidence in them, but also because of who he is. We read 15, 16, and 17. Look there with me. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, Yeah. By way of reminder. Just a little note there that that he is saying again that he knows they've been being taught well. So this would be reminder, not necessarily new ground. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly, there's the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering, now now he's using priestly language, isn't he? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, again, priestly language, by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Well, boldly on certain points, certainly concerning his calls to them to be loving, to be sacrificial and loving towards one another, particularly, I think, I would think that he's thinking particularly of the last few chapters, and he's certainly written quite deeply, that is, He has not held back throughout the doctrinal section explaining the the deep riches and ramifications of the good news about Jesus Christ and how that all works and what God is doing, very rich doctrine, what God's doing for sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, and a ton of work there too he, he put in. Things he had heard they had already been taught, 
and had embraced, so it is, again, by way of reminder, Paul writes, and he writes, still in verse 15, that he's been able to instruct them as he has, only because God's grace has enabled him to do so. In fact, it is because of God's grace that Paul has been made a servant of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles at all. Notice how Paul sees his whole ministry as a gift, a grace. His whole ministry is a gift from God. Paul understood his unworthiness to come to Christ at all, to be counted righteous because of Christ's righteousness, to be saved, to be redeemed, his unworthiness at all. But then beyond that, his unworthiness for this task. In fact, before God saved Paul, as you all know, Paul was a hater and hunter and killer of Christians. He was a Christian persecutor. He was the single most dangerous individual to the continuance and survival of Christianity in the world of his day. And so because of this, Paul had a deep and ever-present awareness of his unworthiness to be in Jesus Christ at all, and all the more to be a servant and minister of the gospel. And so there was no question in his mind that it was a grace that he had been called into this ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, we are all unworthy. We are all unworthy. Yes, of saving grace, but also of the privilege of sharing the truth about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with those who don't know, because none of us deserve it and none of us have earned it ourselves, that that message would come off of our lips. We are right where Paul was. We are right where he was in unworthiness for the task, even to speak the truth about Christ, to dare to speak it as if it was just something to say. And one truth among many, one way among many, or whatever it it may be, we dare to speak of it nonchalantly, even wrongly. We are right where Paul was in unworthiness for such a task. You don't have to have persecuted the church or have had the worst of sins plastered across the, the news. All you have to do is to be a sinner without hope in the world, by nature a child of the wrath of God, and when saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to stand right where Paul is and simply say, I'm not worthy to have been saved, and I'm not now worthy to have the gospel of God, the good news about Jesus on my lips, and to carry it to other sinners. But Thank you, God, for the gift of giving that to me. Do we think of it as a privilege, a gift to tell others? Not merely a burden, not merely some duty. Paul sees it as a gift to be able to speak about Christ. Into verses 16 and 17, Paul views his gospel 
proclamation as apostle to the Gentiles as a priestly service. And in this service, the offering of the Gentiles, he writes, Paul presents to God. As a priest, Paul brings the Gentiles, as it were, as an offering to God. A fulfillment of Isaiah 66.20, which envisions an offering of the Gentiles at the end. And just previously to Isaiah 66.20, Isaiah says that God's glory will be declared to the nations. It seems clear that Paul is referencing all of this here. It's how he understood his mission, himself, his ministry, seeing the fulfillment of God's Word through Isaiah in his own ministry, Paul's own ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. It's happening through me, he understood rightly. And what Paul emphasizes here is his divine commission to do this ministry. That is, grace was given him so that he would serve as God's means, as priestly minister, God's means in gathering in and serving up the Gentiles, as it were, as an offering to God. This offering, he says, is acceptable, therefore, and sanctified, suitable, because it is all done by the Holy Spirit. God is doing this. This is all God's doing. This is God's grace. My very ministry, he says, is God's grace in fulfillment of God saying he's going to take the the good news to the world and gather in Gentiles, in bunches. He's saying, that's what I'm doing. That's what God is doing through me. And and remember, by the way, how off-putting this could have been, certainly would have been to the Jews, and perhaps even some of the Jewish Christians in Rome who, as we read through the letter, seem to still be struggling in their weakness with, with how this all applies to Gentiles and who perhaps, uh, perhaps still look down upon Gentile Christians in some way as yet being unclean and not possibly part of God's saving purposes. God isn't saving Gentiles, surely. No. Well, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, even unclean Gentiles like you and me are transformed into people who offer themselves as a holy sacrifice unto the God of Israel. That's what Isaiah foretold. It's what God said would happen. Therefore, Paul can glory in what God has done in making him who, from a human perspective, the most unlikely of candidates, into the apostle to the Gentiles to bring in the brothers and sisters from afar, whom God created for his glory. Paul has been privileged to witness the great harvest among the Gentiles, the great promise of the Messianic age. He, he knows what's going on. None of this was lost on Paul. And he wants Christians to know it too. And so here it is, enshrined in God's Word forever, for you to see. You wonder, how did the gospel get to America? How did it get to South Dakota? How did it get to Brookings? How did it get to 1973? How did it get to 2023? 
Here's where you start. Here's where it started. God fulfilling His promises from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He's writing to Rome and His plans to go beyond. Whether He takes it or not, it goes beyond. God's Word never fails. It accomplishes all that He sends for it to accomplish. Paul knew all of this because he knew his Bible and he walked with the Lord. He says then, again, in 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. The key phrases there are not, the key words there are not my, but in Christ Jesus and for God. And a verse that would make sense of this is when he wrote that I, Paul, worked harder than them all. He's talking about his work. But now he explains the context. But it was not I. It was the grace of God that was with me. That's what he's saying here. And we'll see it further. Let's go uh, on in point three. Paul in the power of God, verses 18 and 19. He'll go on more about this now, this understanding his work and God's work and how that, that fits together. And he wants you to know, he wants you to be clear. Paul in the power of God. So Paul clearly believes whatever success that has accompanied his ministry, we call it fruit, call it success, whatever, churches planted, people coming to know the Lord, being, being spared of of death and, and being told to keep going. I have people in that city, you know, the, the things he experienced. God would just drag him along and empower him and provide for him, and there was fruit. But he clearly believed whatever success that had accompanied his ministry is due or was due, always is due to the power of Jesus Christ. He writes verses 18 and 19. Let, let's look there together. Look there with me. For I will not venture to speak of anything. Okay, now that's pretty clear. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Through me, yes. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, and now his specific task, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, and that's uh, faith, by the way, faith. Um, now, the means Paul sees that God has used, uh, oh, I wrote a note in there, and I can't, I can't understand what I wrote there. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I don't know, something about means, and I'm sure it was true in my head, and then I, then I typed it, and there was some sort of breakdown towards my fingers. <laughs> Anyways, let's keep going. Uh, let me start at 18 again. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, the means, God doing it, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And then now this, how did God do it? Yeah, yeah, the means Paul sees that God has used through himself, Paul. So by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, 
so that from Jerusalem and all the way around the Mediterranean to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Hmm. Well, the only thing Paul has to talk about when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God, when it comes to what God is doing, when it comes to the church, when it comes to his own calling and ministry, when it comes to the fruit of that ministry, is what Jesus Christ has done through him by the power of the Spirit. And he's not just being humble. This is actually Paul the Apostle enshrined in the Word of God telling the truth. He, that is, he's saying something accurate, theologically sound. Christ has done it. An example of this, and in turn an illustration as well, is preaching, which is an example in Paul's own life, but it's an illustration of all of this as well. What I'm doing right now, I mean, and all that goes into that. Good preachers work hard with the text. They study it. They work hard to understand it rightly. They read widely about it. They fill their heads all week and hope that their hearts catch up and they prepare to deliver what they've learned from the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God. They want to make the sermon as accurate as possible, as precise as possible. They also want to make it as interesting as possible. They want to let the text of Scripture speak so that in turn then they want to persuade, warn, exhort, and encourage whatever is in the text or whatever God would do through His Word that morning. They want all this to happen. They prepare for all this to happen. They pray for all that to happen. And yet, nothing spiritually will happen. Nothing of eternal value will happen as a result merely of their skill and time. The Holy Spirit who attends the preached Word of God is the only one who moves people to come to Jesus Christ and the only one who is able to feed and grow Christians according to the Word of God. The Word is where the power is applied by the Spirit. It's not in programs or human skills or techniques or affectations. We can preach this Word till we are blue in the face, but if the Holy Spirit does not work through the Word preached, nothing happens. Well, at least nothing good, nothing lasting, nothing God-glorifying. Oh, people may love the preacher, they may love the church, they may have feelings, but none of it good and lasting unless the Holy Spirit does it, unless it's Christ doing it. So, Paul is looking at the results of his ministry about which he thought just like this. And he looks at the results of his ministry to that point, and he understands that those results have been wrought by God. Through him, yes, but apart from the God part, he's just a dude wandering around blabbering about stuff. 
He owes everything to the grace of God, and he offers to God a return of the gifts that God himself has given. And, and that's all that we can ever do. What can we give to God that we have not first received from his hand? He is not served by human hands as though he needs a thing. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and you want to offer him a chunk of beef or something. Do you not know? We do not give, for example, God our money so that he will make us rich, give us something we want, or forgive us our sins. God owns it all already. Everything we possess belongs to him. We all must be ready to give and and be given at a moment's notice as an offering of praise to the Lord God. In Christ, because of Christ, and through Christ, we who believe are His, and this is God's story. This is our Father's world, as we've sung. It's His universe, and this is His redemption plan, His word, His gospel, His church. And we who believe by God's grace, we are His, created entirely by Him, by His grace, saved by His grace. Even, Paul writes elsewhere, created for good works, which He Himself has prepared beforehand for us to do, to which Paul says, oh, I worked, but it was not I, but it was the grace of God. This, there's no wiggle room here. There's no room for boasting. Paul's not boasting in himself. With Paul, how could we ever speak other than how he writes here? in verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. We will not speak of faith and works and endurance and our church as if it had to do primarily with us. Look what I suffered through and made it. Look, look what I built Look at me, I came to God. I'm smarter than that guy over there. Look at me. No Christian talks like that. Oh, maybe an error. We want to talk like Paul. We want to think like Paul. And the result then, the fruit of Paul's proclamation of Christ crucified is that, verses 18 and 19, the Gentiles came in. They, they started to come in. The Gentiles obey God. That is, they, they believe the gospel which God has accompanied by signs and wonders and proclaimed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Recall, just a note on that, that throughout the book of Acts, before the closing of the canon of Scripture, signs and wonders often confirmed the truth of the gospel proclaimed. The truth of the gospel proclaimed. The truth of what the apostles proclaimed. And so with Paul, and as he traveled from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is sort of like Serbia, Albania, Bosnia, I don't know what the current term is. That's not my, I don't have a degree in geography. It's below, above my pagan or something, I don't know. Wherever Paul has been, he's proclaimed the gospel, revealed him by Jesus Christ. And as a result of what Christ has accomplished through Paul's preaching, There were new churches throughout this entire area, all around the Mediterranean, southern Europe, Greece, Asia Minor, obviously north of Jerusalem, 
and so forth. And so Paul's confidence in the success of this evangelistic enterprise, if you will, lies in the fact that the Holy Spirit works through the the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the word, accompanying it with fruit. So Paul would keep going. That's sort of what he's writing about here. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep evangelizing. He would keep proclaiming, keep preaching, keep planting churches. Because God, he understood, understands, not only determines the ends, that is, who will be saved and how it will all shake out, he has also ordained the means by which he will save them. So go. And he went. And so we proclaim, and so we go, and so we support, and so we disciple, so we discipline, and on and on. Point four, and last, verses 20 and 21, Paul the pioneer, Paul the pioneer. This is a pioneering work. We've been hearing this already in the verses leading up to this, but, but now verses 20 and 21, let's read them. Look there with me. And thus, therefore... I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. There's no churches where I'm going, is what Paul's saying. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. By the way, we'll see about this later, but he's hoping that Rome will catapult him into the unknown, unreached parts of the world, starting with Spain. Lest I build on someone else's foundation, verse 21, but as it is written, and he sees a fulfillment here again, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He understood himself to be the fulfillment of these prophecies of God through Isaiah. Well, it's clear that Paul desires to preach primarily in those places where the gospel has never been proclaimed before. That's where he's That's his heart's desire. That's his ambition. He views his job as planting new seed, not not watering. watering. Uh, It's evangelism. It's church planting. That's what he's doing in Gentile territory. This explains what he means by saying back in verse 19 that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Does he mean that everyone came to Christ, you know, across the fruited plain? Well, no. What he means is, as he understands his mission, he's done. He's preached where he's been. He's preached from Jerusalem to Illyricum, established churches, and then he goes, and the churches take over. He's fulfilled his purpose. His aim as an apostle in our verse 20 is to proclaim the gospel where Christ is not named. And he citing Isaiah 52 there. He sees, again, this proclamation of the gospel to those who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. He sees it as fulfillment of Isaiah's great prophecy about the Gentiles coming in to Christ. Because Paul is determined to obey the call of God to plant churches, he has not yet been able to come to Rome. He's been kept busy by his calling, but now he hopes to swing on through because he has more work to do. Paul's gospel ambitions, Paul's gospel ambitions. Are there lessons to learn? Well, I think some throughout the way. Pastoral Paul, encourage one another. Let's learn to be encouragers like Paul. 
Paul as priest of God. Let's have a mind towards unbelievers. Would we be gifted with proclaiming the gospel? We're called to it. We're called to it. Would God be pleased to draw others through our efforts? Paul, in the power of God, oh, but don't ever think it was you. Be faithful. Give all glory to God. Paul, the pioneer, we continue to pray. We continue to support. We continue to look to support pioneering work because it's still happening. It's still going on. And Paul's not done explaining his plans, his purposes. To that we'll turn in the coming weeks, Lord willing. May God make it so, all these things here for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again, and thank you for your spirit for coming now and applying it and bringing it to mind and continuing to feed and grow your people. We pray, Father, that it would bear fruit, that it would continue to bear fruit here as well, just as you've been doing from Paul's day so faithfully down through centuries and ages and across the globe, across cultures and languages, mountain ranges and oceans. Your word goes, you make a people, and then they go and they keep going and they keep growing. This is your doing, and we are a part by your grace. May you continue to bless, and may we continue to seek to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.